It's working. It's working its way there. Hi, and good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and uh, this year's Hepatopancreatic Obiliary Conference with a focus on pancreatic disease this year, and you'll hear more about that in just a minute. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that we have a curriculum on culinary medicine that's been going on, and part of, uh, part of that was today's breakfast. And this is a series that's been put together by a combination of clinicians and nutritionists and people thinking about wellness. We're trying to educate ourselves, that is, we the providers and staff, about healthy eating, healthy food choices, and this is going to be a year-long curriculum. I think it's a fairly unique program among both departments of medicine and schools of medicine uh, in the country and something that we're quite proud of and uh, we hope that there'll be a lot of education throughout the year. It starts at 7.30 in the morning before Grand Rounds and we welcome you to arrive early so that you can take part in the informational sessions that go on about uh, learning about healthy eating. As part of that, we do a trivia contest and uh, I'm uh, wanting to tell you that today's trivia question, if you, if you looked at it, was the healthiest fruit choices are A, potassium-rich fruit, B, berries, or C, a variety of different colors and types of fruits. <coughs> okay, this wasn't terribly tough today. <laughs> and therefore, we had a bunch of people put their name in with the answers, and we picked one with the correct answer, and that's Joanne Orleski. So Joanne, are you here? Joanne, nice job, all right. And for your wonderful choice today, we have something for you. We have... Okay, without further ado, it is my delight to bring to the podium uh, Dr. Brian Lacey, who is our section chief in gastroenterology and hepatology, a professor of medicine in our department of medicine, uh, a wonderful clinician, investigator, scientist, and bon vivant. And we are going to have him uh, introduce the day, which uh, not only the beginnings of the day with medical grand rounds, but uh, what the conference will be like. So, Brian? Thank you. It's always kind of a little awkward to have what I think is kind of this dog and pony show, as you see a lot of people before we start the conference here. And I think it's really important, though, to put this in perspective. Um, as many of us get older, we've lost track of who Dr. Hans Fromm was. So I think it's just nice to hear a little bit about Dr. Fromm. There we go. Okay, thank you. Um, and so let me just go through this in the next minute or two because we have an honored guest this morning, Dr. Walter Park from Stanford. And this is a named lecture. And I think for those of you who might be a little bit younger than me or maybe weren't here in the past decade, it's nice to hear about Dr. Fromm. And so Dr. Fromm, Hans Fromm, who is 66, died on January 2nd, 2006, uh, following a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Uh, he was born in 1939 in Hagenau, Germany, and was the son of Dr. Johannes and Irene Fromm, a general practitioner and dietitian. Uh, he was an excellent student and athlete. There are his parents there, and there he is sprinting towards the finish line. He obtained his medical degree from the University of Freiburg Medical School in Germany in 1964, 
followed by internships in Bonn and Berlin. And there he is with two of his sisters in Germany before leaving for the United States. He trained in internal medicine at the Memorial Hospital in Worcester, Mass, and the Lemuel Shedock Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And there he is as a young intern. He met the love of his life, Sharon, in America here, and they were read shortly thereafter. And there's his wedding day picture, which is wonderful. Uh, he had two sons, Chris and Martin, and he was very proud of their accomplishments. Uh, this is a little bit dated now. We should probably update that. One is an emergency room physician, and one is a Chinese scholar, and he was very proud of them. Hans did his fellowship training in gastroenterology at the Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York, and then the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He became a member of the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in 1975, and he quickly ascended to full professor of medicine and head of the GI unit at Montefiore Hospital. In 1984, he joined the faculty at George Washington University Medical Center in Washington, D.C. as professor of medicine and as the director and head of the GI unit there. In 1999, we were fortunate to have Hans join the faculty here at Dartmouth Medical School as professor of medicine and director of the Hepatopancreaticobiliary Center at Dartmouth. And Dr. Fromm's leadership greatly enhanced the comprehensive, multidisciplinary management of patients with liver, pancreatic, and biliary disorders. Throughout his career, he really distinguished himself as being so dedicated to the core missions of an academic medical center. And he really worked greatly on patient care, teaching, and research. He was a gifted mentor for multiple trainees and young faculty members when he was here at Dartmouth and he took great pride in their career. And you'll notice here this nice young man over here, Dr. <laughs> Timothy Gardner, uh, who looks like he's barely aged since that time. <laughs> he was nationally recognized as a researcher in the field of liver diseases and internationally recognized as well. And he gave lectures throughout the world. He was a successful researcher, as I've mentioned. He served on multiple committees for the AGA and the American Society for Liver Diseases and multiple publications. And we were really delighted to continue a tradition that was started by Hans uh, 14 years ago now. This is the Dartmouth Hepatopancreatic Mobiliary <coughs> Conference. Um, our focus today will be on pancreatic diseases. And uh, as part of this conference, we're fortunate enough each year to bring in an internationally uh, recognized expert in the field of either liver disorders or pancreatic disorders. And in just a second, we'll hear a nice introduction. This is Dr. Fromm's in the last year of his life. Um, we'll hear a great introduction from Dr. Gardner for Walter Park. So thank you for all everybody for coming this morning and for learning a little bit more about Hans Fromm. Well, uh, thank you very much, Brian. Can you guys all hear okay now in the back? That better? Okay. Well, it gives me um, great pleasure to introduce uh, my friend and one of really the internationally uh, well-known um, experts on pancreatic disease, Dr. Walter Park, who's coming to us from uh, Stanford in Palo Alto. 
Um, Dr. Park grew up really throughout the United States. His, his father was uh, worked for IBM, so uh, went to many different locales, but eventually did his undergraduate at Georgetown University and medical school at Johns Hopkins. Uh, following Johns Hopkins, has been at Stanford really ever since, doing his residency uh, fellowship, obtaining a master's in health uh, uh, services research, and is now an assistant professor and director of the Pancreas Center there at um, Stanford. Uh, Walter is really an internationally known uh, expert on pancreatic disease, specifically pancreatic cysts. Published numerous articles, is on multiple national committees, and is really a very well respected uh, person in our world of uh, pancreatic disease and GI. So it's uh, a great pleasure to have Walter, who traveled all the way here from California yesterday, uh, to give grand rounds on pancreatic cystic disease. Walter? Good morning, everybody. Um, can you hear me as well? Because uh, I have this mic on as well, so hopefully there's no feedback. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here, um, coming from California, and particularly this time of the season. I'd like to start off by thanking Drs. Rothstein, Drs. Lacey, and Drs. Gardner for the opportunity uh, to be here with you on this special occasion. Um, the title of my talk um, is Opportunities and Anxieties of the Incidental Pancreatic Cyst. Um, and what I hope to convey to you in the next 30 to 40 minutes is a little bit of, uh, about the clinical relevance and its associated, and, and some of the associated clinical challenges of pancreatic cysts. And I think it's a topic that many of us, not only in gastroenterology, but perhaps as internists in primary care, are seeing more increasing, increasingly in your clinics. I have no relevant financial or conflict of interest to disclose. So, Throughout this talk, there's going to be a lot of um, discussion that will lead you to conclude that there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of uncertainty, but I hope that you'll at least leave away with a couple tidbits of concrete knowledge, and um, that might include being able to identify two pancreatic cysts that are recognized precursors to <coughs> pancreatic adenocarcinoma, to be able to define current consensus criteria for recommending surgical resection of pancreatic cysts, and to be able to list currently available cyst fluid-based uh, tests to diagnose pancreatic cysts. So I've structured this talk into three sections. The first is really, why do we care? Why should we care? What is the clinical relevance? Um, and hopefully, if I've been successful in doing that, um, this will then segue nicely into understanding the evolution and rationale of some of the current clinical guidelines. And then hopefully if I've done that well, you'll be able to understand that there are a lot of limitations, which has given rise and a lot of intense interest in pancreatic cyst biomarkers. Um, so why do we care? Well, I think we care because pancreatic cancer remains a recalcitrant and lethal cancer, a GI cancer that has no proven screening or early detection strategy yet. And of the three recognized precursor lesions of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, it turns out that two of them are actually pancreatic cysts, macroscopic cysts that we can actually see by current imaging technology. And that is the mucinous cystic neoplasm and the intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasm. The third precursor is the pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasm, also called PANIN. And these are microscopic lesions which are not visible by current imaging technology yet. And while PANINs represent the vast majority or the majority of precursors to pancreatic cancer, it has been estimated in various pathology series that mucinous cystic neoplasms and IPMNs may account for as many as 15% of pancreatic adenocarcinomas. So there are over 20 different cysts described in the literature, and for the purpose of this talk, I'm going to focus on the most common three. 
beginning with cirrocystic neoplasm. This is, a this is a cyst that is seen commonly or presents <coughs> commonly in the seventh decade of life. It has a slight pre preference for females over males and has a slight predisposition for being found in the distal pancreas as opposed to the proximal pancreas. These are um, some imaging, uh, um, characteristic radiographing histological images of a cirrocystic neoplasm. This cyst is characterized by being saturated with microcysts, often described by radiologists to have a honeycomb-like appearance. And often there can be internal um, calcifications, sometimes described to be in a sunburst calcification pattern, or sunburst calcifications, excuse me. In the top left corner here, then, is an endoscopic ultrasound image of a typical pancreatic cirrocystic neoplasm, where you see a lot of, where you'll see a well-defined lesion with uh, multiple, multiple anechoic microspots micro supporting uh, microcysts. In the bottom left corner is a CT correlate, which kind of shows in the periphery a hypotenuating areas, uh, which are the microcysts with an hyperdense area consistent of that uh, internal calcifications that I was referring to. In the bottom right, you'll see a gross pathology specimen, again, highlighting the microcyst with a nice sunburst calcification pattern. And histologically, under the microscope, these cysts are characterized by having glycogen-positive staining <laughs> colloidal cells. Mucinous cystic neoplasms, these have a very unique uh, demographic uh, and imaging presentation. They tend to present relatively earlier, in the fifth decade of life, and they have a very strong predisposition for being found in females, up to 95%. In fact, the vast majority of these cysts are typically found in females and predominantly in the distal pancreas, be it the body and tail. These tend to present, uh, and again, these are imaging um, features, and on the top right corner, these tend to present as unilocular cysts, sometimes with a few septations, and in the top right corner is an endoscopic ultrasound image that shows a classic example in the body of the pancreas, and in this case, there's one little septang. The yellow arrow highlights some peripheral thickening, which can be seen. The, um, the CT correlate of this EUS image is right here. Again, a unilocular cyst, very well-defined with one little septa here in this case. This is the gross pathology specimen showing some of the thickened wall. And the key characteristic of a mucinous cystic neoplasm is what you see under the microscope. And that is a, that, that is a columnar epithelia with variable atypia, with underneath it being an ovarian, unique ovarian subepithelium, an ovarian stroma. It has been hypothesized because of this ovarian epithelial stroma that these cysts perhaps arise from ovarian rests within the pancreas. Uh, this, the ovarian, the, excuse me, the mucinous cystic neoplasm has also strong resemblance to ovarian mucinous cyst adenomas as well, which also supports that notion. The introductal papillary mucinous neoplasm tends to present in the seventh decade of life. It has an equal predisposition between females and males and, and has a slight predisposition for being found in the head of the pancreas. There are two subtypes, two major subtypes of IPMNs, and on the right is the side branch IPMN. Um, and, and as in the name, these cysts arise from within the duct. Um, and the side branch, and, and they often present as unilocular or multilocular cysts. And as this cartoon shows, they can also present in a multifocal nature, which can also be a preoperative clinical clue that what you're dealing with is a uh, IPMN. Below this graph cartoon, in, in the side branch IPMN, the main duct is well preserved. There's no evidence of dilation or involvement. And these are some CT imaging, an endoscopic ultrasound imaging, and an MRCP imaging demonstrating common um, examples of what a side branch IPMN might look like. 
And the left is the main duct where the, uh, the origin of the, uh, of the dysplasia or of the adenoma originates from within the main duct. And this typically presents with a dilated main duct. Often you'll see globules of mucin. Sometimes you'll see some papillary growths. These are correlating CT images of a dilated, uh, significantly dilated uh, main pancreatic duct. This is a, a little papillary growth within under endoscopic ultrasound of, within a main pancreatic duct. This is a dilated duct here. I would point to the endoscopic view of, of, from a side view of an ampulla, which shows a patulous fish mouth papilla. Um, this is not always seen in main duct IPMNs. This is essentially mucin extruding out of the papilla. Uh, this is thought to uh, be found in up to 30% of main duct IPMNs, and if present, it's thought to be pathognomonic for a main duct IPMN. So this is a table that highlights some of the best pooled estimates of the frequency of malignancy found upon surgical <coughs> resection. Serocystic neoplasms are considered benign, uh, and, and there have only been a few case reports in the world literature ever suggesting there's been some malignant potential. But for the most part, we associate these cysts to be essentially of, of very little to minimal to zero malignant potential, and for these, we do not worry much about. In the surgical literature, uh, the best pooled estimates of mucinocystic neoplasms uh, uh, demonstrate that there is a presence of malignancy in up to 15% in some of these cases. Main duct IPMNs have a very relatively high malignancy uh, rate of 60%, and branch duct disease of 24%. Now, I think it should be noted that I emphasize that these are surgical case series, so uh, I think as our understanding of these cysts has evolved, the the, the the presence of malignancy upon diagnosis is probably is much lower than this, and that this perhaps represents kind of the advanced cases of such cyst types. But I think the point being that we know biologically that these cysts do have clear malignant potential. So how common are these cysts that we're seeing uh, incidentally? Well, we don't know in short. We don't have any well-designed population-based epidemiological studies that have estimated this. What we do have are a variety of uh, case series from um, several single, from se several centers that have described uh, prevalence rates anywhere from two to 30 percent, depending on the methodology, how they define the cyst, to what extent they actually looked at the, the actual images. And here I highlight two of what I personally consider are the best um, estimates. Um, the first study was an American study that uh, that over the course of one year um, looked at. Um, 2,800 consecutive outpatient CTs in patients who had abdominal pelvic CTs for reasons other than an abdominal concern. Uh, and what they found, uh, and, and methodologically, they had two separate radiologists individually review each image to verify that there was a cyst. Uh, and they found a prevalence rate of 2.6% overall in US adults over the age of 50. And they found that as, with each decade of life, the prevalence increased, such that by the eighth decade of life, they reported about 8.5% of incidental prevalence of these cysts. Now, about the same time, on the other side of the Atlantic Pond, um, there was a study done uh, in Europe uh, using MRI technology. And this in, coincidentally also enrolled about 2,800 patients of healthy individuals who um, electively um, had a, a full body MRI as part of a well, wellness screen. Uh, and, they, and they had no evidence of, and if they had any history or evidence of pancreatic disease, they were excluded from the study. And they very similarly found with the same sample size uh, a prevalence of 2.4%. And similarly, they found that with each decade of life, there was an increasing prevalence of these cysts. 
So my best sense is about 2.5% in the population. But again, these are still a fundamentally single-center case series. So if we were to extrapolate and accept this estimate and then, uh, and then apply that to what is uh, currently understood about the US population over the age of 40, we would say that there are approximately 2 to 3 million affected US adults. So if pancreatic cysts are precursor lesions, and we are seeing it with some prevalence, about 2.5% in the general population, then we would expect to actually see it at a higher prevalence in those who have a higher risk of pancreas cancer. And this was actually nicely shown in a study a multi-center study that was actually looking at, um, uh, focused on looking at developing screening strategies for patients at high risk for developing pancreas cancer. And they took 216 patients, 90% who came from patients with very strong family histories of pancreas cancer, greater than two relatives, and about 10% were comprised of known mutation characters, such as Pucci-Eggers, uh, that would lead them to have, that would lead you to suspect that they would have a high risk of developing pancreas cancer in the future. And they basically, um, all, and these were all asymptomatic patients, and they all underwent a CT scan, an MRI scan, and an EUS scan. And the focus was to see how well these imaging modalities did to look for any kind of pancreatic abnormality. And the most common abnormality seen in this population was, in fact, the pancreatic cyst. In fact, 39% of this asymptomatic population had an incidental pancreatic cyst seen, and they had no history of pancreatitis prior to suspect that this would be a pseudocyst. So we are seeing kind of evidence that this is um, that, so this does kind of fit our biological understanding. But, is this, but are we now dealing with an epidemic of IPMNs? Is this really a problem? And Dr. Gardner um, did a very nice collaborative study with the Mayo Clinic uh, using the well-defined Olmsted County <laughs> cohort. Um, and they were able to basically identify the number of IPMN cases uh, over the course of 20 years. And they showed that while the the incidence of, the, of, of IPMNs have risen over the past decade, two decades, uh, from 0.3 per 100,000 to 4.3 per 100,000. Using this US SEER database, you could see in the bottom line, uh, the IPMN cancer rate was relatively low, whether there was a 70-fold divergence, suggesting that perhaps, yes, we are seeing a lot of these IPMNs, but we don't need to worry that this is an ushering in a new epidemic of pancreas cancer. In fact, Pancreas cancer rates have been relatively, unfortunately, relatively stable, and we haven't bent the curve on that. But the but the the, epi, the epidemiology of IPM seem to be increasing, and this is perhaps really just a reflection of, of our of our changing practice patterns, in that we're using CT and MRI more frequently to diagnose a, a wide variety of conditions. And Dr. Gardner most recently went on to again look at the U.S. SEER database to calculate. To try to counter the, the, the estimates that I showed you earlier about the surgical case series of mucinous cystic neoplasms having a prevalence of 15% of cancer and main ducts having a 60%, and went on to look at the SEER database to see what might be a more population-based estimate of the prevalence of cancers among patients with pancreas cysts. And, uh, what, he, and what he calculated was that, the, uh, that this is relatively rare, that there's 33 per 100,000 patients of patients of, with pancreas cysts would actually have a means of producing adenocarcinoma. And so I think this is also a very helpful study because it provides some kind of counterbalance. Um, as there are limitations with the surgical cohort study, there are some limitations obviously with this population-based estimate in the sense that, as I pointed to you, the accuracy of the denominator, we don't have a population-based estimate. We are extrapolating. So the, the, the accuracy of this estimate is hinges on the assumptions of the, of the of our, the accuracy of the assumptions, and that is how correct, how truly correct is the prevalence, 2.4%. And finally, 
you know, the, the, the numerator here was mucin-producing adenocarcinomas, and it's not quite clear whether pancreatitis only give rise to mucin-producing adenocarcinomas. Either way, though, even if you do a pretty wide sensitivity analysis, the general point still remains that even if you fluctuate and made um, different estimates, this is still a relatively rare event. So which begs the question, what is the natural history? You find an incidental cyst. What's going to become of this cyst? And again, we really don't know. Um, we have a lot of case series, retrospective and prospective, that try to attempt to estimate and characterize what happens to these cysts. And this is one of the first studies that came out back in 2008 uh, from the Mayo Clinic, Arizona, of 160 patients who had incidental cysts. They excluded patients uh, who had cysts less than one centimeter. And so these are basically cysts between the sizes of one and greater. Um, and, they, and they divided them between cysts that were less than three centimeters and cysts that were greater than three centimeters. And the median follow-up here was three years. And over the course of time, they didn't actually, none developed cancer, and about 10% um, developed some signs of growth. So the conclusion was that these, are, uh, these grow fairly slowly. And this is a nice, this is a table from um, Al-Haddad and colleagues from Indiana that nicely reviewed many of the studies that went on since 2005 to 2010 to kind of capture and characterize what is the natural history of IPMNs. Um, these case series were mostly retrospective. There were a few prospective studies ranging from cohorts from as small as 36 to as high as 201 with a follow-up anywhere between two and five years with uh, evidence of uh, progression, progression being defined as growth of the cyst, anywhere from 2 to 30 percent, uh, with, uh, with a malignancy uh, evolution of anywhere between 2 and 5 percent. I should note that I didn't include in the slide, since then there have been some larger studies that have come out, one from the Indiana group uh, that um, followed uh, approximately 300 patients over the course of three years, and they found a, a, a uh, malignancy transformation rate of 1% over the course of those three years. And more recently, um, some nice data from uh, uh, Kaiser Permanente Southern California, which is perhaps the most robust study, because now we're not dealing with one single center, but this was actually a community health system of over 700 <coughs> patients, where they were able to follow these patients in medium in two years, and they observed a malignant transformation rate of 0.4% per year. So I think what, what this tells us is that, the, it, that it's slow uh, and that this is probably well south of 1%. We don't really have follow-up data, and we're only beginning to see follow-up data beyond five years, because this gets at the question of if we're going to follow these patients, how long do we really need to follow these patients? And this is just a small study that came out a couple of years ago from France of 50 patients who had follow-up well beyond five years, and the median follow-up in this series of 50 patients was seven and a half years. Uh, and while 75% of these patients went on to show no signs of growth, 4% um, did eventually develop cancer, suggesting that, granted, this is a small case series, that perhaps we still need to be following them somewhat uh, longer than we think. So, well, so why do we care then? Well, because this is an increasingly recognized incidental loma that many of you will see in your primary care clinics or your gastroenterology clinics. Um, you'll have gotten a CT to rule out kidney stones or gotten a CT, even a chest CT, uh, and it captures a part of the pancreas and, and the radiologist will comment on an incidental hypodense lesion. Um, and that we're seeing these more commonly, that in the eighth decade of life uh, with the baby boom, that up to nearly 10%, one out of 10, might have an incidental cyst. So this is going to become an increasingly recognized problem. 
And unlike some of the more simple and liver kidney cysts, we can't quite just shoo them away and, and reassure them because we know that mucinous cysts and IPMNs do exist, and they probably represent epidemiologically uh, about 50% of those cysts. But we do know that the natural history of these are that they're quite indolent, that while they do bear malignant potential, they do grow relatively slow, and our best estimate is about 0.4, 0.5% per year. Um, and therefore, we do need to come up with a clear, reassuring clinical strategy as to how we're going to manage these patients. And I think that what the pancreatic cyst to, is to pancreas cancer is very similar to what we as gastroenterologists deal with with colon cancer. Colon polyps are the precursors in the adenoma carcinoma sequence to colon, to colon, to colon cancer, and Barrett's esophagus is the precursor to esophageal cancer. And if we had a minimally invasive tool, uh, such as a colonoscope to remove these cysts, I don't think the conversation would be very different. We'd, we'd be structuring this and talking about this like colon polyps are to colon cancer. But the fact of the matter is we don't, and the options we do have are pancreatic surgery for now. So this will hopefully segue into what clinical guidelines uh, have evolved as a consequence of, of this increasingly recognized situation. So. I think I would take liberty um, to characterize the, the early 1990s as a time when these cysts were being increasingly discovered, and it was thought that by removing them, uh, we were doing our patients um, a favor. Um, however, I think as these series continue to show that many of these, while some of them were cancer, that many of these weren't, I think this prompted the need to develop some standardized guidelines. And the first set of guidelines that were uh, came together through uh, was convened by the International Association of Pancreatology in 2004. Uh, and, these, uh, and this was published in 2006. Now, these guidelines were trying to develop preoperative criteria for managing the variety of pancreas cysts. And they actually did not specifically comment on serocystic neoplasm, but I just kept it in this table for completeness, just to remind you that serocystic neoplasms, again, are considered benign cysts, and which if, we, if they have the typical preoperative characteristics, we often will reassure our patients with no necessary follow-up. It was concluded that with mucinocystic neoplasms, that if they should be preoperatively suspected, given the, the relatively young population, given the location of the cysts, and the idea of following these patients for 30 plus years, it was recommended that these patients should go undergo surgical resection if they were considered surgically fit. Main duct lesions were also recommended for resection if preoperatively suspected, um, given the associated higher risk of malignancy between 50 and 60%. And then the real issue is what to do about these branch duct IPMNs, um, and which ones should we really resect, and which ones should we safely observe. And so they came up with an algorithm for branch duct IPMNs, essentially defining that if the, if the, pr the presumed pancreatic cyst was a branch duct IPMN and it had a size greater than three centimeters, then in a surgically fit patient, you should recommend resection. If the cyst also had mural nodules, which were a sign of high risk uh, for malignant transformation, or an associated dilated main duct, or evidence of positive or if the patient was just symptomatic. And they were not very descript about what symptomatic meant. They basically, on purpose, kept it fairly loose. Now, they said, well, they have obstructive jaundice, or they have pancreatitis. But if you think, in your own opinion, that they have abdominal pain, that you would correlate to that cyst, well, that, by definition, would be symptomatic. And so these would be the criteria upon which surgical resection was recommended. Short of that, they proposed a surveillance algorithm, beginning a stratified by size. So if your cyst was less than one centimeter, 
then get an MRI or a CT, and if it shows stability, then repeat it every year. And they didn't say at what point you should you stop, you just repeat it every year until we get more information. However, if your cyst showed evidence of growth, well then you should perform more sensitive imaging, including an endoscopic ultrasound and an MRCP. And if through the EUS and MRCP, you found any of these stigmata, then they would go to surgery. And if they didn't, and if the cyst was between one and two centimeters, now you were following them more closely, between six to 12 months, if they were between the sizes of one to two centimeters, and if they were two to three centimeters, you follow them every three to six months. So this seemed to work initially, and it, and it seemed to give some guidance to clinicians who are taking care of these patients. Now, again, to remind you, we don't have um, a clear gold standard or, uh, or a safe, reliable way to histologically diagnose these pancreatic cysts. And that is why we have this preoperative surveillance or management algorithm that we use, imaging characteristics, clinical characteristics. But keep in mind, we are presuming that these are branched out to IPMNs um, preoperatively without having a tissue diagnosis. And so based on this essentially imaging and clinical stratification system, um, several studies went on to see, well, how well did this criteria perform? Because at, at the heart of it, the evidence to really support these criteria were of low quality. And, they, and it was intentional that the group actually said consensus guidelines as opposed to evidence-based guidelines, because they were really extrapolating from low quality evidence. And they still wanted to give some latitude to clinicians to recognize that there are going to be individualized cases and to give some, um, some uh, license to um, handle each case individually. But you know, despite not having a histological system, this preoperative criteria worked fairly well. It had essentially 100% sensitivity for uh, identifying malignancies. In other words, with this algorithm, we weren't missing any cancers. The good news is we were capturing all the cancers. The bad news, however, was we, it wasn't a very specific algorithm. It had a specificity of 20 to 30%. So we were still taking out a lot of pancreatic cysts with, with Whipple procedures or distal pancreatectomies and associated morbidity mortality without clear benefit or clear confidence that we were really changing the natural history of our patients. And so this led more recently to a, a second, a revised second iteration of these guidelines in an attempt to try to increase the specificity while preserving that, increase the specificity while preserving the sensitivity. And so this was recently published just two years ago. And so the main differences here, on the left column is, is again, a, a rehashing of the criteria for resection by the old criteria, Sendai. And I should say, Sendai, the reason why for Sendai is, is that this is the name of the Japanese city where it took place in. The new criteria I like to call Fukuoka because that was the, the, the next Japanese city that they had the criteria in, um, similar to the Rome criteria for our IBS colleagues. But anyways, um, here we have essentially, these are the old criteria. So essentially there was a binary cutoff in the old criteria that if it was 3.1 centimeters, well, you should probably go ahead and resect. But if it was probably 2.9, at least if you read this to the, to the letter of the law, you said, well, no, we'll kind of watch. And so you know, we, the, the experts felt, well, this was kind of arbitrary. We know that there is a linear correlation, that the, that the larger the cyst, the higher the probability that you will see cancer. But why, why make this arbitrary? Why make it three? And so they, they decided to abandon the cutoff size, or at least explicitly saying or giving a hard number. They just said, we're not going to use three centimeters, but we do know that if it gets bigger, you do want to be a little more concerned. We also realized as we were doing more endoscopic ultrasounds that not all nodules are the same. 
that what appears to be a nodule in MRI or CT may actually not be uh, an actual tissue-based nodule that was presumed these to represent. And in fact, some of these happen to be globules of thickened mucin. And so the idea was they wanted to distinguish enhancing mural nodules versus um, just the presence of a mural nodule. They increased the size, duct, uh, the, the uh, diameter of the duct size from 6 to 10 to try to increase the specificity of trying to capture the more higher risk main duct IPMNs. Um, and they tried to limit now and explicitly define what symptomatic would mean. Essentially now, if you had obstructive jaundice as a consequence of the pancreas cyst, then it would be reasonable to proceed directly to surgical resection. And there was no change on the positive cytology. And so I apologize. This is a very complex slide, and I'm violating the rules of presentations of giving you know, a, a complex slide with very little font, and everyone's trying to squint now to look at it. But I intentionally decided to keep it here because to show that I think as we begin to understand more of a disease, it gets more complex. Um, but bear with me here. So at the very top, there are three now criteria that, if present, go to surgery, assuming the patient's surgically fit. And that is, if there's obstructive jaundice in a patient with a cystic lesion in the head of the pancreas, if there's an enhancing solid component within the cyst, or if the main pancreatic duct is greater than 10 millimeters in size, suspicious for a main duct acumen, and if yes, consider surgery clinically appropriate. If no, now they have the second category of features called worrisome features. And in it is pancreatitis, the cyst size of greater than three centimeters, a thickened enhancing cyst wall, the main duct greater than five millimeters, the non-enhancing mural nodule, or an abrupt change in caliber of the pancreatic duct with distal atrophy. And if you have any of these features now, it is recommend that you pursue an endoscopic ultrasound. And if you find a definite mural nodule or evidence of main duct involvement or a cytology suspicious for malignancy, then proceed to surgery and surgically fit. Otherwise, then stratify them by, excuse me, cyst size for surveillance. Now here they depart from the previous criteria and they say, well, now if it's less than one centimeter and it's fairly small, well then, you know, we could probably stretch this out to two to three years based on the data we've gotten since 2006. Now, but they don't actually say stop at some point. They actually say just now you can lengthen it to every two to three years. Between one and two centimeters, do an MRI or CT once a year and then every two years and lengthen it by every two years. I should say that although they do put CT here, um, the preference now has been more MRIs in light of increased recognition of radiation exposure, as well as the fact that MRI technology with its T2 imaging sequences provides very nice um, precise images of the cyst, as well as what's within the fluid. Um, and so anyways, I'm sorry, between one to two centimeters, doing it uh, first doing one at one year and then every two years, and then you can lengthen as appropriate. Again, they keep this somewhat vague on purpose. And then if it's between two and three centimeters, now you're doing an EOS every three to six months and then lengthen by alternating an MRI with an EOS and then consider surgery for those who are young. Um, and if you're thinking that you're going to really follow this patient for 30 plus years and the prospect of that doesn't sound very appetizing or interesting. And then if it's greater than three centimeters, definitely close surveillance uh, of three to six months and then considering surgery for those who are surgically fit. Now there haven't been too many validation studies of this criteria. A couple have come out since then. Um, and with generally reassuring results, but, but some mixed results. This, the, the largest case series from, from MGH um, essentially described 217 patients, where for the most part, cancers were not missed. And so the sensitivity was preserved. 
But they did see that there was an increase of, of, of high-grade dysplastic lesions that would have been missed from 6.5% to 8.8% um, with the new criteria. And this raises a debate within the community as to whether we should be trying to, what is the appropriate dysplastic lesion that we should be operating on? Um, some feel that we should really demonstrate that invasive cancer is present before we're going to be talking about surgery. I tend to believe that we should really, that the, the holy grail of what we really should be trying to identify are those with high-grade dysplastic lesions. And I'm trying to, and I extrapolate from the pancreatic cancer surgery literature that we know that even in those who are surgically resectable, we do know that the survival, five-year survival is only 20%, meaning that they do recur. And so my bias, and it's a non-supported bias, is that by the time it is cancer, we're, we, um, we're, we're minimizing the curative intent and that we should really be focusing on high-grade dysplastic lesions. So I do interpret this as somewhat of a concern. Uh, in our own single case center series of 134 patients, we didn't find any compromise in sensitivity, and we did see an increase in specificity from 17 to 52%, demonstrating that if we use the Foucault new criteria, we wouldn't, in our, at least in our experience, we would, have missed, we would not have missed cancers, and we would have done um, a significantly less number of pancreatic surgeries. So one might think that as a consequence of this new iteration, as a consequence of new knowledge, that we are now evolving to increase consensus. However, I think it's not clear whether we are, and that there may be even more chaos. As we further study this, we're getting discrepant uh, information. And there are some controversies that I'd like to highlight. One, at the same time that this new document came out, essentially abandoning the cyst size cutoff, a meta-analysis came out that showed that cyst size greater than three centimeters was the strongest associated predictor of malignancy. <laughs> now, so to the clinician and to the, to the educated individual who's reading the medical literature, you got one paper saying, well, forget about, the, the international world's experts say, forget about cyst size being um, mattering and don't worry about that. And then a meta-analysis, which is considered a high quality level paper saying a size greater than three centimeters is the highest among all the risk factors for cancer, so how do you reconcile that two? Well, essentially a meta-analysis, as many of us know, is you know is only as good as the data that goes in. And so what these investigators essentially did was take all the surgical case series and, and how they structured their retrospective series in binary between three centimeters and took what they had and just did the statistical analysis. So in fact, this isn't a surprise to see this meta-analysis paper, but I would just caution and say that this is interpreting the context of this is the data we that they had. So I, even though it apparently looks like they're contradicting one each other, there is a way to kind of make sense of the two. And very controversially in 2012, around the time that this paper came out, we were already feeling fairly comfortable. And as I said, the focus was trying to increase the specificity because we felt that the sensitivity is wonderful, but we were operating on patients we shouldn't have been operating on. And what we, in this one controversial case series out of Germany showed that in their experience, cysts that were considered Sendai negative, really having no worrisome features, no high-risk features, they reported that up to 25% actually had high-grade dysplasia and invasive cancer. And, and if we were to use, continue to use these series, we were going to miss these, um, miss some very important clinically relevant cysts. Now, it should be important to point out that other centers haven't really been able to reproduce their observations, but it did make many of us, it did point out the vulnerability in our current algorithm, is that again, when we look at a cyst by CT, when we look at a cyst by MR, when we look at the clinical characters, at best we're making a guess, an educated guess of what kind of cyst we're dealing with, because we don't have a reliable histological means to get 
the diagnosis. And in some studies, we've shown that what we think the cyst is versus what it proves to be afterwards, we're correct about 65% of the time. So we are wrong about a third of the time. So it did kind of bring up, uh, bring out some of the kind of Achilles heels of this algorithm that we're working on, and it did make some of us worry. There's also been now some controversies in surveillance. As I said, the consensus criteria concluded that while they expanded the surveillance to two years, there was really no good data that surveillance can be spaced to two years in these smaller cysts, or even discontinued after long-term stability. Bottom line is, we just don't know. And so in the consequence of what do you not know, what do you assume? Um, do, you, do you take a conservative approach, or do you take a, a, a definitive approach? Furthermore, at the same time, there was also literature showing that IPMNs may really be surrogate markers of pancreatic cancer. And there were case series showing that there were cancers, solid tumors developing separate from the actual IPMN. That you might have an IPM in the head of the pancreas, but these patients were developing an actual solid tumor in the tail. And then perhaps we should be focusing less on the IPMN as a source of the cancer, but the IPMN is really just a field defect that, just that, that identifies those patients that are going to be higher developing cancer anywhere in their pancreas. And as a consequence, many of the Japanese and Asian investigators have still proposed that even no matter what the size of the cyst is, we should actually be following these every six months still for looking for solid tumors, not necessarily because the IPMN is going to become cancer. But this is the debate. This is kind of what's happening. We're getting more chaotic and differing viewpoints. On top of that, the American College of Radiology came out in a white paper in 2010 telling their radiologists that if you see an incidental cyst and it's less than two centimeters and you repeat a CT in one year, well, then you don't need to do anything further. And so I'll have, you know, you'll get some interpretations of radiologists who've read the literature will say after, oh, incidental cyst, and in their interpretation, they'll say no further follow-up needed, right? Where this clearly contradicts the consensus criteria. And finally, although this is, not, this is not official or public, the American Gastroenterology Association has been drafting their own statement and their own guidelines. Um, and this is still in draft form, so, um, but it, the draft was put out for public comment. Um, so, uh, and they basically uh, interpreted the data to, to, and they're proposing that if surveillance for a low-risk cyst can stop at five years if there's no, no change. So the point about this is that you're now seeing an evolution of different guidelines saying different things, which is not going to be a great help to those of us who are trying to take care of these patients. And it's not going to be a great, and it's only causing more anxiety to our fairly well-educated patients uh, who know how to Google, who know how to do these internet searches, and who know that it will come to you with all the papers in hand in clinic saying, well, this is the pile that says I should have this surgically resected, and this is the pile that says I shouldn't worry about it, so what should I do? So there are some limitations then in our current clinical guidelines. So how do we find our way out of this? And my bias and interest has been in pancreatic cyst biomarker research. And I think this is a growing opinion among many people in this field. Why pancreatic cyst fluid biomarkers? Well, compared to a serum biomarker, the cyst fluid is a relatively protected space, theoretically and biologically harboring a higher concentration of secreted proteins, genetic material, and metabolites that are going to be unique to the biology of a pancreatic cyst. And because it is relatively accessible at EUS, it's not, uh, it is, while it is relatively more invasive than getting a blood test, um, one could conceive that this is not too much of a significant burden. Ideally, the holy grail would be a serum biomarker where we can just take a blood test and be able to stratify. Um, but uh, um, hopefully the cis fluid has less um, competition with other proteins that we are starting there. Traditionally, cytology. 
has not been very good at helping us. The bottom line is that the cyst has an epithelial lining, which is where the dysplastic tissue is, and it does secrete some cells and some proteins, but the cytology, when we collect the fluid and send it to our cytopathologist, there just aren't enough cells for our cytologist to really say with, with, with uh, confidence what the actual histology of the cyst is. So the diagnostic yield is anywhere between 20 and 30%. It's higher if there is a mural nodule, but now you're not really aspirating fluid. You're actually really just FNAing a solid mass. And so it approximates more of what a solid tumor would be. So that's no surprise. In terms of cyst fluid biomarkers, the first um, was CEA. And this was um, been studied in the early 2000s. And this is the Sentinel paper that kind of led to it being uh, implemented in, in standard of, in clinical practice. And this was a, a from the Pancreas Cancer Cooperative study back in 2004, of a, and it was a multi-center study of 112 patients with histological correlation. And they identified CEA to have a sensitivity of 73%, a specificity of 84%, and a diagnostic action of 80% using a cutoff of 192 to identify mucinous cysts versus benign cysts. This marker does not <coughs> diagnose cancer. It is the accuracy that I just told you is good about distinguishing whether this is an, a mucinous cyst or an IPMN, or a serous cyst or a pseudocyst. It doesn't tell you if the mucinous cyst or the IPMN that you've now diagnosed is high grade or cancer. It just tells you what category it is. It has very limited diagnostic ability to tell you whether cancer is present. This is a summary table of over the last five years of, of, of published biomarkers of using the cis fluid. And it essentially demonstrates the intense interest of, of, of biomarker research in this, uh, in this area. And beginning with DNA biomarkers, um, uh, there's approximately 11 studies. And the most common has been the whether KRAS mutations, which are fairly common in pancreas cancers, could help differentiate and identify uh, what type of cis we're uh, dealing with. And in addition to CA, there is a commercially available KRAS diagnostic test. Um, and uh, their data uh, has shown that it has some differentiating ability um, with a sensitive 45% and specificity of 96%. It hasn't really caught on widely, however, because of its cost and, and, and it hasn't been convincingly, uh, hasn't convinced most of us that, it's, that the incremental value beyond CEA is, is actually worth it, which has been a real struggle for it. Um, there have been other investigators looking at other mutations, and, and the group at Hopkins went on doing a, essentially a genomic profiling of, of IPMNs and, and found an interesting hotspot in GNAS, which is a guanine nucleotide binding protein alpha subunit. And they found that GNAS mutations were quite specific for IPMNs. And this was seen in up to 66% of their IPMNs. And if you combine it with the KRAS mutation, it could identify IPMNs with 96% diagnostic accuracy. Um, and so this was very exciting, and encouraged by this, they went on to look at other cysts, other cysts, mucinous cysts and serous cysts, and found that there were some relatively correlating DNA mutations with the other ones. Um, serous cystic neoplasms can be seen in von Hippel-Lindau disease, and they also found von Hippel-Lindau mutation to be commonly mutated. Um, and so the Hopkins group is looking at developing, uh, they've been validating a, a variety of a DNA biomarker panel to see if checking KRAS, GNAS, CTNNV1 for solid pseudopapillary tumors uh, and um, the von Hippel-Lindau gene would be able to differentiate and tell you what type of cyst you're dealing with. The, the limitation is that this doesn't tell us the dysplastic nature, because it's, it's not enough just to know whether we're dealing with a cyst that has malignant potential. 
we need to know, well, is it, does it have malignant potential and how likely will it actually become cancer? And that's where the limitation in DNA-based biomarkers are currently. There have been a lot of interest in protein and proteomics, about 12 studies in the last five years, and um, highlighted here are a couple of them. A lot of the mucin proteins have been shown to be elevated in cis fluid, um, potentially identifying high-risk, high-grade dysplastic IPMNs. Uh, combination of the mucins and CA199 from the Michigan group has shown to differentiate mucin as cis. Again, the question when we look about cis biomarkers is what is their diagnostic capacity? Can they differentiate benign from pre-malignant? And can they also differentiate pre-malignant from high-grade dysplasia and cancer? So, and the, and the, real, the real value would be the latter, trying to identify a, a biomarker that can really differentiate those cysts that are pre-malignant and are essentially at high risk for malignant transformation. Um, and, the, and so far, the DNA and the protein targets really haven't de defined a champion. Um, the Memorial Sloan Kettering group has looked at um, cytokine profiling uh, and found the pro-inflammatory cytokine IL-1 beta to be actually quite um, useful in differentiating high-grade dysplastic IPMN from low-grade. And so this has, uh, since the initial paper, this has yet, I have not seen further work on this yet. And um, MicroRNAs um, has also become an increasingly um, um, popular biomarker of interest, and various groups have used some of the microRNA literature in pancreas cancer, and then went on to test to see whether they were present in cis fluid, and observed that MR, uh, microRNA 21 and microRNA 221 seem to be the most promising. microRNA 221 seems to have, in some of the smaller studies, uh, show a differentiating ability between benign pre-malignant as well as malignant. And so it'll be very interesting to see uh, what becomes of that in future validation. VEGF-A um, uh, from the Indiana group. So uh, it's a very interesting biomarker, potential biomarker, in that it's kind of taken the question and flip-flopped it around. And rather than trying to find the biomarker that identify which ones become cancer, they were looking for biomarkers that would tell us which ones are serous for which we can confidently say, Mrs. Smith, you have a serocystic neoplasm, go forth and prosper, no surveillance, no anxiety needed, you know, and only come back if you're having discomfort. And they found that VEGFA, um, and this matters because although there are typical characteristics of serosis that I alluded to, uh, about 25 to 30% of these can have what's called oligocystic variants. They can essentially not look classic and they can look like a mucinous cyst or an IPMN. And that's, and for those reasons, we often will follow these cysts that we might think are serosis, but because we're not sure, we'll end up following them. So a biomarker like this might be able to then kind of weed out the population that we don't need to follow. And more recently, uh, a monoclonal antibody, DAS1, which is a monoclonal antibody against a clonic subepithelial phenotype, I'm not sure exactly what led them to actually study it in this, other than there was some, it's a GI epithelial process. They, they looked at it in cis fluid and found that it had high sensitivity and specificity for detecting high-grade dysplastic IPMNs. And, we'll, and I'll be very interested to see what happens in the future for validation. So um, we've also at Stanford been very interested in this and uh, have been, since for the last five years, have been uh, collecting uh, pancreatic cyst fluid in our pancreas clinic. And uh, over the past five years, we've accumulated 200 <coughs> samples. Uh, we have about 100 of them have cysts with clear histological correlation. About 15 are non-mucinous, 50 are about pre-malignant, and 20 are cancer. And this has, been, this has allowed us to go on and um, collaborate with various different Stanford labs to try to identify and explore uh, to find potentially novel biomarkers. 
And so in the next five to 10 minutes, I'm just gonna highlight briefly what we've kind of uh, been thinking about working on. And the first is a protein actually called amphoregulate. This kind of came out of um, some earlier genomic profiling of pancreas cancer that identified AGR2, anti-gradient 2, as an upregulated gene. Um, and upon further study of AGR2, this is a, um, a gene that um, develops a protein that helps stimulate cell growth. Um, and physiologically, it's involved in when you get injured, it gets upregulated for injury repair. And in cancer, this is essentially significantly upregulated. And one of the mechanisms by which AGR2 functions to achieve this purpose is through secreting amphoregulin, which is a secreted epidermal growth factor receptor ligand. And so we hypothesized that as a secretable molecule, perhaps we would see elevated AVEG levels in the cis fluid. And so we first started with immunohistochemical studies of tissue microarrays. And this kind of supported our hypothesis, essentially showing that mucinous cysts, there was a high presence of staining for AREG in IPMN's low grade, MCN's low grade, pancreatic cancer, IPMN's high grade. You don't see any staining in serocystic neoplasms. You do see a little bit of staining in chronic pancreatitis, however. And, and again, that's not surprising because physiologically, AGR2 is involved in physiological healing. And in chronic pancreatitis, there's injury, and then there's repair. We then went on using a commercially available research assay to see whether we could detect a, different, a difference in the cis fluid. And we did find that uh, in mucinous cancers, that the uh, median AREG levels were 986, which is significantly different from the benign mucinous and the non-mucinous types, and had an ROC of 0.76. And so we were felt somewhat encouraged by this, and we're in the process of further validating this. We then uh, started looking at metabolomics, and essentially using a mass spectrometry-based technique that quantifies the different uh, the amount of metabolites in the small in a small pancreatic system. In the omics cascade, I like to think of genomics as kind of what can happen. Transcriptomics will tell you what appears to be happening. Proteomics tells you what actually makes it happen. And metabolomics kind of tells you what has happened and, and is happening. And we sought to explore to see whether we would find a differential metabolite expression. And we took 30 of our cis samples, and we found that we identified over 506 metabolites, of which 10 were differentially expressed between mucinous versus non-mucinous. And we then took a validation cohort of 20 and found that two of those 10 could be reproduced. And uh, interestingly, the first one, this kind of surprised us, but it was a very simple molecule, one that is very ubiquitous, and that was glucose. Glucose apparently has some differentiating abilities here. Um, and we found that in mucinous cysts, something as simple as glucose <coughs> could act, was significantly lower than non-mucinous cysts, and it had an ROC curve of 0.84. <coughs> Uh, so, you know, we, we're always thinking about high, using high technologies to find new microRNAs and DNAs, and we were kind of like flabbergasted, said, oh, something as simple as glucose. We went on to validate this um, using our clinical lab, um, and uh, this here just shows, uh, this is a larger sample of 70 that we're going to present at ACG this year um, that just kind of shows this is using just your normal clinical lab, hospital clinical lab assay, and we were able to reproduce it. Um, this was actually using just a glucometer. So we just raised the question, well, could we do a point of care test? If we're taking the fluid out in the middle of an EUS, could we just bring a glucometer and see if we would see similar? And we found very similar profiles. And then we then went on further and said, can we just use a dipstick, a urine dipstick, and just dip the thing into the, into the cis fluid? And would, a, would a, the presence or absence of glucose just have some differentiating ability? And, it, and it's not as good, but it does have some ability to help different that most of the mucinous, only 20% of the mucinous had any 
potential staining of glucose um, concentration of any, and non-mucinous were constant where, for the most part. So you know, we're kind of exploring more point-of-care ways. Now, this isn't going to be the holy grail. This is not differentiating cancer. But it seems to be performing similarly to what we're currently doing. And that is, if we do check a CA, we're sending it out to the Mayo to do uh, as a reference test. But now we can basically, perhaps, if this works as well, this could be a simple point of care test. Kynourinine is another was the second metabolite that we identified, and this is a, a tryptophan metabolite, which is an aryl hydrocarbon receptor. Um, actually, a, has been an in, of, of great interest because of its role in the immune system in pancreas cancer. And we did find that kynourinine as a metabolite was differentially expressed. We didn't have a commercially available research assay at that point, and we recently acquired one, and we're looking at to see whether we can uh, um, potentially validate this further. So. I've kind of shown you that there's a lot of interest in these biomarkers. There's a lot of groups kind of publishing kind of small studies. How do we move this field forward? How do we now take what might be promising and, and rigorously validate it so that we can bring it to the bedside? Well, we, we kind of know how to do that in therapeutics, and that all ends with the double, the randomized placebo-controlled trial. Well, in diagnostics, it was less clear, and uh, this was just kind of a concept put forth by the National Cancer Institute about the different phases of how a diagnostic biomarker is going to get to uh, patients. And basically, it starts off with exploratory studies and then clinical assay validations, and then phase three is a retrospective longitudinal study, prospective screening, and then looking to see whether, as a consequence of the biomarker, you're actually bending the cancer curve. So kind of they laid out a, a, a five phase of, of development. Um, and most of the assays that I present to you are really kind of at phase two right now. That's where we're mostly at right now. And so we're trying to gear up to see what kind of, or what we need to do for phase three. And what will phase three look like? Well, phase three is essentially going to um, be a prospective specimen collection with retrospective blinded evaluation. So many of the repositories, including ours that you might be seeing in other centers, is really going to be the basis for phase three studies. And, and what we really need to do is prospectively collect these patients, collect their cis fluid, bank it, preferably and prior to whether they have cancer or not, and then go back in time once the outcome has been deliberated, once we know in the future what they actually had, go back and randomly pick cases and controls, and then use the a priori biomarker and see and then assess its performance. Um, and um, appropriate to the clinical context, we then also, before we actually do the analysis, you have to kind of define what would be the acceptable performance criteria, which would then give rise to the necessary sample size. And so this was just the study design of what needs to happen next. And it's been felt that given the low frequency of cancer transformation, that the idea of doing phase four and phase five studies would, would take forever. And so biomarkers would never come into clinical practice. So it's been fairly well accepted that if, if, if any of these biomarkers I've talked about can pass a rigorous phase three study, then it, may be and then it may be ready for clinical practice. And the phase four and phase five can follow as it's entered into clinical practice. So that, I think, is you know, where we are in terms of the next barrier. We need to start doing some of these phase three studies. And if, it, and if we see that, then we can start implementing them into clinical practice. <coughs> and to that end, in addition to many single centers developing their own repositories, the NCI now, through the Early Detection Research Network, has, is actually developing a, a reference set of 400 pancreatic cysts coming from multiple centers. Um, we currently have about 200, or a little under 200, much less, about 150. So in a, hopefully in a couple of years, we'll have gotten to a point where we'll have a critical set such that all these biomarkers that have demonstrated phase two success can now then be studied in phase three, and we can even do a comparative effectiveness 
and take all the biomarkers that are show promise and hopefully have some way to move this forward in the next five years. So to conclude, and I appreciate your patience, I hope I've conveyed to you that pancreatic cysts are an increasingly common incidentaloma, and this leads to a lot of patient anxiety. Our imperfect guidelines and our imperfect diagnostic tools lends itself to this anxiety, but also um, leads, um, and that we have moved from 2000, early 2000s to now to more of a period of more observation than resection. But there are limitations, uh, and that hopefully through further research in some of the cis fluid biomarkers that I'm personally interested in, that we may be able to find our way out of this uh, clinical conundrum. So I'd like to thank you for your time, and I'd like to acknowledge uh, the American College of Gastroenterology for providing me a junior faculty development award, uh, the funding from some of the uh, NIH U01 for the pancreatic cyst reference set, some pilot funding I've had from the GI division. Um, pancreatic cyst is an interdisciplinary uh, field that involves radiologists, surgeons, pathologists, and I'm very thankful that I have uh, very collaborative colleagues uh, that have made this uh, possible and a very supportive research staff. Thank you. Questions. We'd just like to present this nice plaque on behalf of Dr. Hans Fromm and his family for this wonderful lecture this morning, Dr. Park. So thank you for coming. Out. I'll take the liberty of asking the first question. So you described a classic scenario. Mrs. Smith is 70. She comes in with severe abdominal pain. Maybe she has diverticulitis. They get a CAT scan. Now they see a cyst. What does the primary care provider do? Do they send them to Dr. Gardner? because they don't want to deal with this anxious patient. Do they get a CEA serum level, a CA-99, just get an MRI? Do they just reassure her now and let her go? What would you do? Uh, so I, I would actually, rec um, the short answer is I would probably recommend they refer to Dr. Gardner. Part because, <laughs> and this is no way, and I'm not trying to diminish the capabilities of the primary care practitioner, but there are certain specific features of the incidental cyst that you have to be in tune to. There's going to be associated anxiety, and I think no matter how long you talk to them about what you know, um, these visits often are more educational, and they're not 20-minute RPVs. They, or uh, these are visits often require a lot of uh, consultation and discussion. Um, and, I, and I think it would probably be that would be my shortest answer in that sense. Right. Sometimes that consultation would be very important for everybody and take the pressure off the PCP. Yes, that's right. that. Other questions from the audience about cysts and checking lab values or scheduling tests? Got a lot of information out there. So comment again about, uh, you mentioned cyst biomarkers, but why can't we do an MRI plus a serum CPA or an MRI plus a CA-99? Why isn't that a valuable combination? So serum, serum um, CEA and serum CA19 has not actually demonstrated any uh, diagnostic ability. So um, those um, perhaps shouldn't be done. Um, MRI can be done uh, and, and probably will be done. Um, used for, uh, and considering that this is something that you may be following for a certain period of time, uh, an MRI would be, assuming they have no contraindications, an MRI would be perhaps the most preferred modality uh, going forward. And so that can be done before seeing uh, uh, gastroenterology, but if, depending again on the size, if it's a very small, less than one centimeter cyst, then you don't necessarily need to get an MRI at that point. Uh, and that can then just be followed in a year or so. Somebody had asked me earlier, that's what somebody here, I can't believe, but they asked me, uh, you've got these great endoscopic people and they take out 
cysts from the liver and are injecting things and neuronecrosectomies. Why can't we just take out uh, one of these cysts either endoscopically or inject them with alcohol or something else to destroy that tissue? Why yeah. Well, I know Dr. Gardner's trying. Uh, <laughs> no, um, that there are a lot of people out there very much interested in the, in this possibility, and um, there have been um, uh, people have looked at uh, the use of injecting alcohol as a chemical ablative of the alkaline <coughs> binding. Um, people have even used that uh, looking at chemotherapeutic drugs like paclitaxel, um, and um, it's. Uh, I'm not sure whether that uh, the interest in that has waned or whether that's still ongoing. There have been some theoretical concerns that um, a we the in, in those limited studies, while we do show that there is some efficacy in the ablation technique, and there is some concern similar to um, that the full epithelium is not denuded, um, and that the and it's not clear what the response of in causing more causing more inflammation to that epithelial line will lead to excuse me potential future cancer development. So. I think at the end, it's because we're not sure that we've gotten 100% of the tissue, it may not change the decision-making process and that we'll still be following these patients. The other aspect is that IPMNs, which are perhaps the more common um, precursor lesion, uh, as I pointed to, can, can present as a, as, as a focal cyst or a multifocal cyst. And it's felt that these are field defects, that if you have one, you have a tendency to develop them elsewhere. So, and this applies to surgery as well, that even if we resect or endoscopically remove the one cyst we're concerned about, the rest of the pancreas parenchyma is still considered vulnerable and still will require some level of surveillance. Um, and so there have been people looking at ablation techniques, looking at ways to try to mechanically scrape off the cells, but, um, and that's an ongoing area of interest. But as of 2014, we don't have a, a proven endoscopic means. Can you look at, a, at the concept of age and say at a certain age, it makes no sense to pursue the potential that this may become malignant. Yeah, that's a very, a very great question. In fact, a nice abstract from the same um, Kaiser Permanente Southern California group actually looked at Charleston comorbidity index, which includes age, but also other comorbidities, and in that in their cohort, and essentially are beginning to kind of define, help us define who we should stop following. Um, and uh, and I think. Um, Specifically, there hasn't been an age cutoff yet, but I think if you have a patient who, it's a combination of how indolent appearing the cyst is and how old the patient or how many comorbidities they are, and if the probability of, of an alternative uh, process, essentially, where the, uh, as a competing mortality would take over, then you don't necessarily need to be following the cyst. And if the, the other issue is if they are not fit for surgery, if they're really not fit for surgery, then you can make a strong argument that they don't need to be followed. Listen, everybody, thank you very much. We'll let the grand rounds people go. Why don't we uh, stretch, stand up, stretch, take five and break, and then we'll start the whole pancreas stage again.